Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. If you would, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44 today. That's where we are. If you don't have a Bible or if you would like a new Bible, you can grab one in the back there. That's our gift to you. As you turn there, let me review from last Sunday. We watched Jesus turn the tables on the scribes and the Pharisees last week. These religious leaders, they had run out of options of trying to trick Jesus into some type of heresy. And now Jesus has a question of his own, and his question dealt with his own identity. And as you read through the Gospels, you're going to notice that Jesus' favorite title for himself, it was the Son of Man. And that title refers to his own humanity. Last week, we also learned about another title Jesus had, and that was the Messiah. The Messiah, it means the Anointed One. It's rendered in Greek as Christos, it's where we get the word Christ. Christ is not the last name of Jesus, it's his title. And one of the key points from last week is this, really we're defining what the Messiah is. The Messiah, the Christ, is a man who God has anointed to deliver the Jews from out of political oppression. That's what the Messiah is. The Messiah really is a political revolutionary for the Jews, but it was through Jesus' teaching last week that we learned that he's, he's not only the Son of Man, and He's not only the Messiah either, but we learned last week that He is also the Son of God. We learned that Jesus, uh, His first name, it means God saves. The title, the Christ, it means the anointed. And when you put those two, two together... Jesus with his title, it means God saves through his anointed. And that's the reason Jesus can say, and he can make these, these bold claims in John chapter 14, 6, for example, he says, look guys, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the father except by me, through me. Jesus says, you know what? I'm the only way to heaven because I'm the only one that can satisfy God's wrath on sin. God's wrath, it's called propitiation. So in other words, Jesus did what no one else can do because Jesus is the God-man. He's both, meaning that he is truly God and he is truly man. And we learned last week that there are two reasons that Jesus had to be both God and man. Number one, only God himself can make that propitiation meaning only God can satisfy God's wrath on sin. And number two, only man can make the satisfaction because it was man who sinned. Man had to suffer. That's why God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is the only way to be saved. Well, that's a review from last week. Today we're going to see Jesus turn from teaching the scribes. He's going to start teaching the crowds now. Jesus doesn't just teach the crowds today, but he warns them of their hypocrisy. 
he alerts them to the very people who were supposed to be shepherding them and, and caring for them. And he cautions them to be on guard against the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23 has an entire, uh, well, the entire chapter on what Mark covers only in three verses. So you can write Mark chapter 23 in your Bible there as a cross-reference. So we're going to get the abridged version of what uh, Jesus is teaching today from Mark. Now this, this narrative also has a surprising ending because Jesus is he's going to give us a living example of the consequences of false teachers. False teachers, that's who we're talking about today. Who and what is the surprise ending? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's Word. Mark chapter 12, verses 38 and following. Jesus also said in His teaching, He said, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes, who want greetings in the marketplaces. They want the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. But they devour widows' houses, and they say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. And then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. And summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others, for they all have given out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty, and has put everything that she had in all that she had to live on. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for allowing your church to gather this morning. We want to thank you for allowing us to worship you through song and preparing our hearts for the proclamation of your word. Uh, Holy Spirit, please teach us your word now, and please teach us the consequences, the very serious consequences of being a false teacher. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat, guys. Thank you. Let's take a deeper look here at verse 38. Jesus also said in his teaching, beware of the scribes. They want to go around in long robes, and they want greetings in the marketplaces. So notice Jesus' first words in his teaching. Circle that word, beware. Beware. In other words, you better pay attention, and you better observe the scribes. In fact, be diligent with these men. Be on the lookout for these guys. A scribe is a man who has a, a Ph.D. in Old Testament studies, uh, but a scribe is also more than that. He, he's also a lawyer in, in the sense that he, he facilitates ordinary legal matters as well. So Jesus says, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes. So scribes were easily identifiable. They, they wore something like a white graduation gown. Um, it was long white linen and it had white fringe on it. And they wore this gown on purpose. It really was kind of like a, a visible representation of their knowledge of, of who they were. Uh, the way that they dressed, it communicated something to people. And it communicated to the ordinary people that they were the elite. They were special. They were privileged. 
They were chosen by God. And it just so happens that these men are, are men of wealth and power and prestige. Now, it's not really important what the, the robes were made of. What is important is why they, they wore them. And the reason they, they wore these, these robes is to set themselves apart from the crowd. They dressed like this because they wanted power over the crowd. And this is fascinating. As, as we go through the gospel here, um, we have learned that Jesus' authority is connected, it is demonstrated by his teaching. It's one of the first things that Mark says in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 22. They, the crowd, they were astonished at Jesus' teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority. And Mark says, and not like those guys, not like those scribes. But here we see that Jesus's, excuse me, we see that the scribes' authority is connected to the way that they dress. So you can think about it this way, that the scribes' authority is external. Jesus' authority is internal. So back to verse 38, the scribes, they want greetings in the marketplaces. The scribes had this strong desire for people to acknowledge them. Now, if you fast forward 2,000 years, has anything changed in our day? Has this desire for false teachers to want people to notice them and to applaud them and to celebrate them and, and to make them celebrities, has that gone away? No, it's a heart issue, isn't it? It's, it's, there's a motive there. It hasn't gone away. The only thing that has gone away, well, it hasn't gone away, it's changed, is, is the clothing itself. So you turn on your television and you'll see a TV evangelist in an Armani suit with a gold ring and a pair of shoes that cost more than your house, right? Today we call that the prosperity gospel. It's not a gospel at all, by the way. It, it, we call it the word of faith movement. We call it the name and claim it theology. Um, <laughs> I was watching a documentary on this thing called the Emerging Church a few months ago. And it really, it was so funny to see the difference between conservative preachers and the prosperity guys. Because the conservative guys, they had a, they had a button up and a coat on. Um, they had no makeup on for this video shoot. And they looked horrible. They looked horrible. But when you flash to the prosperity guys, man, they look good. I was impressed. The dichotomy was just, it was, it was so profound that, that the prosperity guys who are so empty, they look so good. And the guys with the words of truth look so bad from the outside. That brings us to key point number one for today. Church history has shown us that the more flamboyant a preacher dresses and the more theatrical his sermons are, the less he has to say. Church history has shown us that the more flamboyant a preacher dresses and the more theatrical his sermons are, the less he has to say. And people still fall for it. Why? Because he looks good. It's all about the image. So in other words, the more money that the preacher has, well, we think the more godlier he must be because we think, well, God has blessed him. And, and who doesn't want to be blessed by God in that way? 
So we think to ourselves, you know what? I want what that guy has, so I'm going to do what he says. And, these, and the people who watch these guys, the people who watch these gals, women preachers, that's another sermon for another day, right? They want to be just like them. It's very, very easy, slippery slope to, to start liking these guys and, and falling for that. Verse 38 continues, Jesus says, they also want greetings in the marketplaces, so when scribes worked, uh, when they walked through the marketplace, people would actually rise to their feet, they would pay their respects, and they would greet them with the title rabbi. Rabbi is equivalent to Dr. So-and-so today. Um, and Jesus says they love that kind of attention. They crave it, they desire it, they thrive on it. Now, I want you to think about this. If everywhere, if everywhere that you went, people stood up, and kissed your ring, what would that do to your ego? Wow, I'm a pretty special guy. Y'all with me? Yeah. And that was the attitude of the scribes. And Jesus calls them out on it right here. Jesus continues here in verse 39. He says, they also want the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. So the best seats in the synagogues, that refers to a bench that was at the front of the synagogue. The bench faced the congregation. These benches were, were called the first seats, or they were called uh, Moses' seat. The, it was reserved for the scribes. This seat was reserved for the VIPs, and the VIPs loved sitting there. It was a, a place where the congregation could, could see them. We've had, we still have the same concept today with uh, when a university professor, when he chairs a department, or some churches, they still have chairs behind the, the pulpit and, and people sit in those. The danger with that, some of those things look like thrones. I'd be scared to get next to that. Jesus goes on to say they want the places of honor at the banquets. So when people had parties, they, they would invite a scribe, and he would sit at the place of honor, usually to the left or to the right of the host. Now Jesus, he says this in verse 40. He says, they, so that's the scribes, they devour widows' houses, and they say long prayers just for show. This whole thing is a show. Hmm. These, so these scribes, will receive a harsher judgment. So we've learned over the past 60 sermons now in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus has repeatedly taught us that the scribes and the Pharisees, they are false teachers of Israel. And we see here in Jesus's, this is Jesus's last public sermon that he has zero tolerance for, for false teachers. Now pause. Does the church today have zero tolerance for false teachers? Matthew's gospel goes into great detail on condemning and, and rejecting these scribes and these Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, woe to you. He says, woe, W-O-E, woe. A woe, it's a groan. It's a wail. Why? Because of the eternal punishment that awaits these false teachers. This kind of judgment is not new. Jesus is following an Old Testament 
pattern here in Isaiah chapter 5 and also in Habakkuk chapter, chapter 2. You can, you can read about that. But what's all this groaning? What's all this wailing? What's all that mean? Well, key point number two. When it comes to abuse, the most tragic is spiritual abuse. When it comes to abuse, the most tragic is spiritual abuse. I talk to a lot of people who have been abused. Physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse. Nothing is more tragic than spiritual abuse. Here's why. Because not only are you messing around with someone's physical provisions, but you're also messing with their eternal destiny. Jesus gives that example here in verse 40. He says, they, these scribes, these false teachers, they devour widows' houses. And they say long prayers. It's just a show. These will receive harsher judgment. So how did the scribes devour a widow's home? Well, one of the duties of a scribe was to come alongside the widows in, in their estate and their planning. They are lawyers. Unfortunately, the scribes here, they would take advantage of the widow during this time of grief. So the scribes, what they would do is they would convince the widows that their money and their property should be given to them and their ministry or, or to the temple. Regardless of what the widow did, though, it, the, the scribe was still going to benefit from this. Jesus says they devour widows' houses. Devouring, this is a term of oppression. It's the picture of, of eating something up as fast as you can. And the picture here is just, right, greed. Verse 40, this is greed. The, the scribe would eventually seize her home when she couldn't pay her, her debts, and he would literally kick her out on the street. And she would find herself in destitution. She would die on the street. What is described here in verse 40, Jesus is not referring to just a few isolated cases. Uh, Jesus is revealing an entire set of, of legal practices where the scribes would foreclose on the mortgage of a widow's home. This happened all the time. It was perfectly legal and absolutely demonic. So in the first century, devouring widows' homes was just as acceptable as it is today by the false teachers. So the false teachers of today, uh, they're a lot more wealthy because of their internet presence. Uh, so not only are they peddling a, a demonic doctrine far and wide, but you know the internet, the, these internet-based ministries, that they give them the sense that they're, they're untouchable. And for the most part, they are. I mean, have you ever tried to get a famous internet preacher to pray for you and your family? It's not going to happen. Jesus says they, they, they say long prayers just for show. Now, Mark's gospel doesn't say specifically, but it seems that the scribe, they would have charged the widows for legal advice, and they would have charged for prayers as well. Notice here that there is a connection between long prayers and greed. So in other words, you got to pay to pray. Jesus goes on, he says, these will receive a harsher judgment. Notice he didn't say judgment. He said, not, this is not just a guilty verdict. This is a severe punishment. If you have the King James Version, it says greater damnation. So just as there, you know, there's a difference in the severity of punishment for, for crimes in our own 
criminal justice system, evidently there are different levels of punishment in hell as well. So don't miss this. The punishment for these scribes will be more severe because they are, they are abusing people spiritually. As a believer, have you ever been severely disciplined by God? That's not fun. What about an unbeliever? Have you been punished by God? That's even less fun. See, there's a big difference between being disciplined as a child of God by your heavenly Father versus being punished as a lawbreaker with God as your judge. Big difference there. So these scribes, what Jesus is saying is they're going to be stripped of all their worldly honor, and they're going to have to endure the wrath of God in a very real place called hell for all of eternity. These are serious consequences for false teachers. So moving on, verse 41, sitting across from the temple treasury, Jesus watched how the crowd dropped in money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. So verse 41 is a transition verse here. Jesus is, he's taken a break from his teaching. Uh, This has been a very, very long Wednesday for Jesus. Evidently, he's decided to do some people watching on his break here. Now, look at this verse. Don't you guys just love the realness and the humanity and even the, the curiosity of Jesus? I mean, he's taking a break, and he's just watching people. You ever do that at the airport or at the mall? It's entertaining, isn't it? Jesus is doing the same exact thing. So he's, he's eating lunch, he's having a snack, he's resting, he's alone, but he's watching people. So Jesus, though, he's placed himself in view of the temple treasury. The temple treasury, it, it is exactly what it sounds like. It's the location where you drop your money in for the temple. Um, the temple treasury was located in, in the part of the temple. It's called the court of women. Both men and women, they were allowed in this part of the temple. And people would place their offerings in, in one of 13 trumpet-shaped boxes. These boxes were called shofars. So just picture kind of a ram's horn. So they just kind of went like this. Um, there were 13 of these things. Um, there was an inscription on each one of the ram's horns so you knew what you were giving your money to. And because it was Passover, there's lots of people dropping money in. Uh, lots of traffic here. There's lots going on. Uh, now, money, you know, giving money to the temple, that's not new. The, the practice of, of giving gifts that was established by God shortly after God brought the Israelites out of, out of Egypt. In fact, it was God who commanded the people to give so that they could um, build the very first temple. It's called the tabernacle. That's in Exodus chapter 25. Later, God gave people instructions for tithing. Um, giving, tithing is just giving your first 10% to God. You can read that in Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. So back to verse 41 here. Many rich people were putting in large sums. So apparently, the collection boxes were shaped like a ram's horn for two reasons. Number one, it made it hard to steal money. Or at least get some change. You know, you drop a 20 in there and you're trying to get $15 back out. That made it hard to do. Y'all with me? All right. It also amplified the sound when you dropped your coins in. So you got a lot of rich people. 
they drop all this money in and it makes, makes a lot of noise, makes a lot of commotion. So there's 13 boxes. So there's thousands of people doing this. Just think of a casino, right? Just all the noise, all the chaos. That's, that's the atmosphere. You guys act like you've never been to a casino. <laughs> I'm in church. I've never gambled. You guys. Verse 42. Jesus then focuses on a poor widow who came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. So evidently, Jesus is not impressed with all the racket from, from the rich people. Have, have we learned yet that Jesus is not impressed with rich people at all through the, the Gospel of Mark? Jesus notices a poor widow. How does Jesus know that this woman is, is a widow and that she's poor? Well, widows, they wore a particular type of clothing. It identified them as, as widows. That's in Genesis chapter 38, verse 14. But she gives to lepta. Uh, lepta is the smallest coinage in Palestine. These coins were made of copper. If you convert a lepta to American currency, each lepton is worth about seven-tenths of a penny, is what I'm told. Obviously, this widow is not just poor. She's destitute. This woman is homeless. She has to beg to live so that's the picture here. So compared to the rich, as you can imagine, she doesn't want to be noticed at all. She's probably ashamed of what she had become. And yet, think about this. The Son of Man and the Son of God is watching her. I mean, that's crazy. This is the most famous donation in history. Verses 43 and 44 Summoning his disciples, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more money into the treasury than all the others, for they all gave out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, has put everything that she had, all she had to live on. So this, this text is a prosperity preacher's dream verse. I mean, can't you just hear it, all the name it and claim it, folks? Let me, let me show you how easy it is to take this verse out of context for money. Can't you just hear him? She put in two copper coins. It's all she had. These, these coins would have bought her last meal. But no, she decided to trust God and, and not lean on her own understanding. Was it wise for the widow to give all that she had? Yes. Yes, it was because she loved God with all of her heart and with all of her soul and with all of her mind and with all of her strength. See, she's a living example of the great commandment and you too should do the same thing to prove that you, you love God. All the others, they, they gave what they'll never miss, but she made a sacrifice. And you too, you can be a living sacrifice. She knew if she sowed sparingly, she would reap sparingly. And on they go, and they go, and they go. And dear friends, this is spiritual abuse. It's spiritual abuse of the worst kind. So question, is this passage about finances? Everything that we've read so far, is this about finance? Is this about tithing? 
Because we have to ask the question because Jesus, he doesn't elaborate on finances, does he? What he does do is he makes a profound observation. Please note, we can't speak where Jesus does not elaborate. Now, there are several very clear passages on giving and tithing. Dear friends, this is not one of them. Let me give you the most clear passage on giving. You ready? 2 Corinthians 9, 7. You want to know what you're supposed to do with your finances? Read that when you get home. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. See, it's very dangerous to interpret this widow's giving as a lesson for your personal stewardship. And it's even more dangerous to listen to someone who, to teach it. So let's back up here. What's Jesus' point? Why did Jesus call the 12 to come and, and watch this widow donate? Think back over the last couple months what the context of all of this has been since Mark chapter 11. We've been talking about false teachers for two months. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth today, beware. Beware of these guys. And in Matthew's account, he calls these guys hypocrites. He says, woe to you, hypocrites. And what's so funny about that is that they're standing right there in front of him. He's calling them out. So he says, beware. In verse 40, we learn that false teachers, they devour widows' homes. So let's ask this question. Do you really think that it's a coincidence that Jesus notices a homeless widow giving two copper coins to the temple right after he taught the, the crowds how scribes devour widows' homes. Is that a coincidence? Everybody go like this. It is not a coincidence. Dear friends, this is not a lesson on tithing. This widow is not some super saint that is a model for us all. We know nothing about her faith because Scripture doesn't tell us. The moral of this story is that this widow is a living consequence of the hypocrisy and the greed of these false teachers. She is a tragic example of how corrupted the religious system had become. So we should not read verses 43 and 44 like this, like the prosperity preachers do. Guys, Jesus summoning his disciples, and he says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow, she's given more than, than uh, all, all, all the others into the treasury. For she gave out of their surplus, or for they gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, she gave everything that she had. We are not to read this verse like that. Verses 43 and 44, they are to be read with sorrow and grief because Jesus tells us that the scribes, these men who are supposed to be shepherds, they are spiritual robbers. Verses 43 and 44 should be read like this. Summoning his disciples, Jesus says, come here, guys, I want to show you something. I want to show you something. See that woman right there? Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than everyone else. For they gave out of their surplus, she out of her poverty. Why is this all she had to live on? Because the poor widow had no surplus. They robbed it from her. These false teachers devoured her. They ate her up and they kicked her out. They left her to die. 
So what this widow does, what Jesus does, she's a living example here. Um, Jesus puts a, a human face to Jesus' teaching. This story really ends on a tragic note. But let's back up for a second. Let's give the, the widow the benefit of the doubt. We don't know anything about her faith. But let's say that she had given her life to God. Because if she didn't, she probably wouldn't be in the temple at the first place. The reason that this narrative is tragic, the reason that she is there giving her, her two copper coins, um, inside that religious system, it's all she's ever known. But inside that religious system, that religious system took everything that she had. She's still giving to it. But at the end of the day, there's no hope for her inside that religious system. The, the temple was not a place for people to worship God. It, it was a place for religious heretics to steal money from widows. Even though most people thought that the scribes and the Pharisees were models of godly people. These men, they look good on the outside. Maybe they had big collars and big smiles and, and all of that, but they, Jesus saw... He saw through all of that. This was just a religious show. They did not love God. They loved themselves. They loved money. They loved power. Because if they truly loved God, they would have recognized Jesus as the Son of Man, as the Son of God, as the Messiah, and they would have worshipped him. Now, an underlying theme of today's scripture is, is church leadership. We call that ecclesiology. Uh, Jesus despised false leaders. Guys, and, and so should you. You should despise them. You should have a zero tolerance for false teachers. The Apostle James, he gives a warning here to those who want to teach in the church. You want to teach in the church? You want to lead a Bible study? James says this, not many of you should do that. Why? Because you know that we're going to receive a stricter judgment. The Apostle Paul says this, he's writing to Tim, and he says, Tim, these guys, they, they want to be teachers of the law, <laughs> although they don't even understand what they're saying. They, they, they're insisting on things they don't even know what they're insisting on. Now, I am absolutely convinced that what many people call church today is not church at all. What many people see on television or social media is actually a perverted version of the gospel. It's not a worship service. What it is, it's a demonic circus, and it's appalling. I mean, I watch these, these clips from these so-called pastors and their so-called churches, and I got to tell you guys, I'll confess this to you, I get mad. I get mad at them. I get mad at the preacher, and then I get sad. I get sad for the congregation. So the question before us today, after reading today's text, is this. How do you discern a true church from a false one? How do you spot a wolf from a true under-shepherd? What's the difference between the prosperity pulpiteers versus uh, a preacher who has been called by God? Well, I've got five things I want to I share with you. But before I do that, I think this is a really an appropriate time to, sh to share with you some of my own ecclesiology. Why do I do some of the things that I do up here week in and week out? Um, 
We learn that Jesus railed against the scribes for wanting titles. Y'all know I have a title? Uh-oh. My title is reverend. All that means is that I've gone through the process of being licensed and ordained as a, as a minister. That's all that means. In other words, for you, that means that I'm not some self-proclaimed pastor, right? Other pastors, elders from other churches, they have confirmed the calling that God has laid on my life. I've been to seminary, formally educated as well. But here's the difference. Here's the difference between my title and the scribe's title. I don't make anybody call me anything other than my first name. My name is Dustin. I've worked really hard at that for you to call me Dustin. I've been called much worse, by the way. Secondly, I prefer to preach from a wood pulpit, even if it's fake wood. Why do I, why do I prefer to preach from a, 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 a wooden pulpit? Because it's biblical. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 4, Ezra, he stood at a wooden podium that they made for him for that purpose. Nehemiah 8, verse 4. I prefer to teach sitting down, and I prefer to preach standing up. Why? Because Jesus sat down to teach. Mark chapter 9, verse 35. I also sit down because this is not a show. I, I don't want any additional attention drawn to me. I really don't. This is not a show, guys. It's the Word of God. And it's Jesus to where your attention should be drawn to. When it comes to music, we choose our songs for one purpose, and that is to worship God. The band is to be invisible. They are to lead us into the presence of God as we open up the Word of God together. I've asked the band not to move when we pray. Prayer is not a transition piece for people to get in place on the stage because it's a show. It's not a show. Prayer is prayer, man. Think about who you're speaking to. So, just a few examples of why we do the things that we do. Now, let me give you a couple of things here, five things to consider when it comes to false teachers. Number one, false teachers, they please man and not God. False teachers, they want you to be happy, while true shepherds want you to be holy. False teachers cater to the congregation's every whim. A true shepherd has a mission from God, and he says no to everyone and everything that doesn't fall in line with that mission, no matter the cost. False teachers make the church and the worship service just like the world. True shepherd pushes back on anything that resembles the world. A true shepherd protects his sheep and protects the reverence of the worship service. Number two. False teachers teach their own opinions, and they use worldly sources rather than the Bible. False teachers teach very little Bible, if at all, but true shepherds, they are captivated, they are enthralled, they are delighted with the Bible. False teachers don't ever talk about man's depravity. They don't talk about man's sin or man's helplessness or God's wrath or hell. 
A true shepherd preaches on all these things with clarity and confidence and passion and purity. Why? Because he knows it's the truth. And you come to church to hear the truth that will set you free. Number three, a false teacher doesn't focus on biblical doctrine. A false teacher doesn't care what God has to say about God. He's, he's not interested in how God has revealed himself to mankind through the Bible. A true shepherd, on the other hand, what he does is he carefully and he exegetically teaches the right ways of God as revealed in Scripture. Number four, a false teacher avoids the heart of the gospel. A true shepherd repeatedly and consistently preaches how you must repent from your sin and how you must believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Number five, a false teacher avoids evangelism. A false teacher prefers to steal people from other churches. We call this church transfer growth. In other words, it's just a club. It's a club moving from another club, moving from another club. Uh, false teachers love that. A true shepherd, though, longs and loves to see lost people meet Jesus. A true church has evangelism as, as the central part of its DNA. So dear friends, there are, many, there are many other consequences to false teachers. Those are five. Those are five things that I, I think that I see on a consistent basis here in the Verde Valley. So my prayer for you is that as you continue to minister to the Verde Valley, as you continue presenting the three circles, as you continue praying for your, your friends and your neighbors and you invite them to church and you continue handing out those blue invitation cards and giving away those Bibles, that this text today, it will give you a humble confidence to share with them whatever lousy experience that they've had at church, for you to share with them, that, look, there's always, there's always been and there always will be people who are false teachers. Look, every single one of us in here, we've all been hurt by the church. But no one has been more hurt by the church than Jesus. Because in the next 48 hours, Jesus is going to be betrayed by one of his closest friends and then put to death by these religious leaders. So dear friends, let's continue to do our part this week, this week and watch Jesus do his. Father in heaven, the consequences of false teachers are numerous. And I know that we're only scratching the surface here. But I pray, Father, that you would continue to reveal the things that are just, they're, they're not right. The things that are mixed in to our own doctrine, the, the synchronism that we find ourselves in, just mixing things in that are not in the text. Father, forgive us for that, and please show us a better way. Please continue to sanctify us. Make us pure. Prepare us for that glorious day, Lord Jesus, where we will meet you face to face. Lord, I pray for the Verde Valley. I continue to pray for those that you will place in our path this week for these divine intersections, for these, for these God-sized appointments. Continue to teach us how to 
turn an everyday conversation into a gospel-centered conversation. And let us step back and just watch you do your work. Lord, we love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.